previously on Hacker Valley Blue. We're doing the very first season of Hacker Valley Blue. This season specifically, we're going to be highlighting threat intelligence. The ransomware trend that we've seen is to now target some of your Fortune 500 organizations and not ask for hundreds of thousands, but to ask for millions of dollars in ransom. This was interesting because in a way I feel like I was born to do what I do now. This research skill, like I can dig something from maybe just a really small detail. It's just it's like hunting for information. So, well, Chris, you just asked about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Attribution is something that, in my opinion, we as an industry right now don't do well. And the reason of that is we don't look at it as a solid analytical practice. This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This Hacker Valley Blue episode is sponsored by Risk IQ. There are so many researchers and analysts that I know and trust that use Risk IQ's platform. Not to mention, I have personally leaned on Risk IQ while leading threat intelligence capabilities in my career. Risk IQ has been crawling and absorbing the internet so practitioners can leverage that data during investigations and research. If you want to learn more about Risk IQ, visit riskiq.com or jump down into the show notes for more information. In this episode of Hacker Valley Blue, we talk to my good friend, Susan Pediekel. I've known Susan for a long time now, and she is absolutely an expert in building threat intelligence programs. We get a little bit into her background, and we talk about what the future of threat intelligence looks like. Let's jump right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here, still repping Hacker Valley Blue. And this time we've brought in our good friend, Susan Pediekel. She is a cyber threat intel consultant the founder of B-Side Sacramento, and also sits on the advisory board for several cybersecurity companies. It's always great talking to you, Susan, and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. We love chatting with you. Obviously, we've done so many things together throughout our career. You were on the show previously, which was outstanding. People love that episode. But for the folks that are new, and may not have heard your episode, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. So it's been about 16 years in cybersecurity now, I think, Um, mainly focused in threat intelligence. I started in the U.S. Air Force. I did 12 years active duty. I um, am still a reservist. And I was doing radar systems, and I just knew that it wasn't anything. It wasn't something that I wanted to do after I got out of the military. And I saw that radars were evolving towards computers, anyways. So I was just like, "Why not cross train?" For those of you who know military terms and stuff like that, you can change your job, but cross train into IT. And so I started doing things like, you know, help desk and system administration, um, things like that. And then I ended up being more in the information assurance realm, which was certification and accreditation. I think it's evolved into what um, ISSOs do nowadays. Once I got out, I did a couple of uh, overseas contracts. And then I found myself moving to the East Coast. And I started at DC3 with the NCIJTF. It's a part of the analytical group of the FBI. And that was my first threat intelligence job. And I learned so, so much there before I went to Mandiant. And I was there for about 
just about three years almost, even there during the merger and acquisition with FireEye and had a great time working there. Went from being a threat intel analyst to operations support for the MIR MCERT side of the house. And then I went back to the Air Force for a little bit. And then it seemed like my career took this trajectory into starting threat intelligence programs and like building programs for different uh, government entities. So my first one working with Raytheon, I went to the United Arab Emirates and um, started a threat intel program for the government of Abu Dhabi. And then I came back and did the same thing for U.S. Postal Service, U.S. Courts. Uh, I moved on to being consultant with Booz Allen. So I was there and I got to work in so many different uh, industries with like financial sector and uh, communications or big oil and gas, um, just getting to see so many different environments. It was amazing. And then I left that and I took a little bit of time off. I went to just do some reserve time. And then also I did my CISO certification through Carnegie Mellon University, which I highly recommend. It's a great program. Then I found Luta Security, which is Katie Mazuris. And um, she and I worked together for about four or five months. I was the director of advisory services and threat intelligence with Luta and uh, just recently ended my contract there. So here I am in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I mean, your background so mirrors mine in so many different ways. Yeah. But one thing that I felt like that you have done so much earlier than I did was really be involved with the community. I feel like the threat intelligence community, you've been speaking for so long, you've been talking to people, you've been standing up organizations, doing all this stuff. How important is community from your standpoint for threat intelligence practitioners? I find it so huge. I remember in the beginning um, when I was at the NCIJTF, here's a story for you. The purpose of the NCIJTF is basically to get all the government entities together in a room and like get them talking because they might all be seeing the same things and, and working on the same things, but never actually realizing that that they're working on, on the same actors, threat actors and stuff. The problem was getting everybody to talk to each other because you can put them all <laughs> in a room and be like, hey, you're seeing this and hey, you're seeing that. And I think we're seeing the same thing. And I remember I called everybody and we would have these like monthly meetings and, and um, everybody would come and, and we would just do briefings and stuff like that. And then I had everybody come in early, like, like an hour early or something like that. And I got everybody in the room and everybody's sitting around this like huge conference table. And I was like, so, you know, after talking to so-and-so and after talking to so-and-so, I think we're all kind of seeing something. And it was silence, like crickets. <laughs> I was like, okay. Oh, no. And I just really was like mortifying. And I just realized it's because nobody actually wants to really share their information, right? You, one of the things about threat intelligence is you kind of keep it close hold. Um, and this is back back in the day, this is early, like 2010, maybe. So I think the industry is realizing, you know, one of the best assets that we have is building these communities, this intelligence community within where we all know each other, we can trust each other. And we can, you know, say, like, hey, I'm seeing this, what are you guys seeing kind of thing and work together. I've even seen mini ISACs formed between big uh, companies where they can share active campaigns even. It's something that isn't public yet, but they can see it within their networks and they can track it. And it just, it just helps. So, I mean, not only like externally for like just career and stuff like that with networking um, doesn't help, but like internally and sharing that information because you always want those resources to kind of help, you know, vet whether it be your internal or external sources that you're getting in for threat intelligence. It's, it's huge to know what's going on in your industry and have those peers. So important. And it's kind of crazy to think, you know, even back in 2010, you were standing up these threat intel programs, maybe even before that, just because there were so many misconceptions of what threat intel could offer an organization or even a specific user. 
What are some of the situations that you found yourself in and having to adapt when starting threat intel programs for like DC3 and the post office and Booz Allen? Yeah. So I didn't actually get to start one at DC3. It was just the first job that I had. But what I did end up doing there, I, I remember it was for the APT1 case, and it just hadn't been named APT1 because that was like a, a mandiant thing years later. But that was the case that I had been put on because it was one of the oldest cases and they had the most information on it. And I literally was just inputting IOCs into a spreadsheet. <laughs> and Ooh. it was tedious, but I, I mean, I knew. <laughs> I knew those domains and IP addresses so well by the end of it. Um, and it was before the days of, you know, us having these great threat intel pl- platforms to, you know, be putting these things into. I mean, I think a lot of the people I worked in the IC actually were the ones who kind of spun off um, from their government careers and created these amazing companies that we all use now because they saw the need for it, right? We were all working out of Excel. So yeah, I remember that was like, one of the biggest, biggest changes that I've seen from 10 years ago. As far as your question goes with starting programs, I would say it was buy-in, right? Like we would get the contracts or we would have these people say, yeah, we need a threat intel program. And I don't know if it's just because like there was a like new trend or something, but everybody was like, yes, we need threat intel. But nobody actually ever understood what it, what the function of it was and how it could benefit their program. So whenever we would ask for something, it was almost like pulling teeth. Like we need to implement this tool or we need to you know, change this process or um, we need things being fed this way, this information being fed this way. And there was always just this resistance. And And it was always being able to make that clear and concise case to negate those roadblocks, essentially. That was the biggest thing, I think, with every program that I've ever created. And then it was always, let's see if we're moving fast enough. And as as much as I know, Threat Intel's biggest thing is being timely and actionable. There also is a really good thing about taking a pause, because I think it was, I want to say Petya and Grizzly Step. Grizzly stuff, especially that was that one, um, what is it, FBI or, or some report that came out in December of 2016, right? And it was this huge report and it had massive amount of IOCs that came associated with mm-hmm. it. And so many of them, I think it was even saying like block Yahoo or something like that. And you're like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? And it was just like the, the, the leads or the, um, you know, leadership in, in these government entities, they would um, immediately be like, oh my gosh. The FBI says these are bad. Let's, let's, or whoever it was that wrote that report, DHS, FBI, I forgot who exactly it was. But they released this report and it had the IOCs, and leadership just took it as Bible. And they're like, let's block everything. And you're like, whoa, you know, let's, let's take a moment, you know, and like (laughs) make sure that these are like legitimate before we actually, and I'm not, uh, I mean, maybe some of them were, but I mean, like, again, you're you're really going to block Yahoo. I mean, so it's things like that that I just kind of like, it's kind of like, let's take a breath you know, let's actually see. And I think the same thing happened with Petya, like, um, or not Petya in that June, all of a sudden there was like a list of like 10 or 15 IOCs that came out and was like, block these immediately. And then they turned out, at least that's what happened in the, the role that I was in at the time. And it turned out that they actually were nothing. Like they didn't actually have anything to do. It was just somebody thinking that they found something released it. Uh, so yeah, it was, it would have been better to just kind of like take a beat. But sometimes when you're dealing with leadership and, you know, they have people to answer to, too. They want to act and react as quickly as possible. So, Nope, it's on the list. Block it. Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, bad. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, wait thing, a minute. Let me, let me look into this. No, it's just a bakery in New Jersey. It's really nothing, I promise you. <laughs> like, it's nothing. <laughs> so... <laughs> One thing that you're alluding to is something that I've thought about for several years at this point, and that you can't just out-science threat intelligence. You Sometimes there's science, but sometimes there's art. 
that comes along with it. So case in point is one time I have my requirements, I have my thresholds, like this is the stuff that we report on. But something came along and I said, whoa, this is interesting. And this doesn't meet any of our criteria, but I'm going to report on it anyways. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, we made actions that actually like saved the company probably a lot of money because we made those actions without it being a part of like this this construct that we already created. And that's what people start to get wrong about threat intelligence is they think that they can buy a tool, they can do these automations, get machine learning, and then everything's good and gravy and you no longer need analysts. But that is so far from the truth because there is an art to threat intelligence. And would you agree with that? And and what would you have to say about the art side of threat intel? 100%. Actually, two things just came to mind and I want to make sure I remember both of them. One was I was just sitting in a a thread until class because I think it's always good to always be learning, right? Always nice to have a refresher. Um, So this past week I sat in a, a class and somebody was asking that, right? Like you, you build a threat intelligence program and you have these uh, PIRs, the priority intelligence requirements, right? And it kind of just gives you those parameters to work within because you put so much work into these PIRs, right? Like it's not like you just develop this list of these are our priorities and this is what we're going to work within. It's like you have to have buy-in from stakeholders and like actually be able to like know that these are the things that you should be concerned with. And then somebody had asked in the class, they were like, if you work on these PIRs, but then something else pops up, like what you're talking about, right? Do I pay attention to it or do I just say no? Like, but what, how do I know that that's something that I should be paying attention to? And like, it, it was just like, how do you know? And, and the answer was essentially like, you're never going to know everything that you're going to be hit with, right? Like you have to just kind of be open. And that's why you need that human element. Because if you set, that's where m- machine learning has an error, right? Because it is programmed by humans and it it is built in with that bias. So it needs to know like, hey, these are the things that might be also happening. And it's human that's going to be able to pick up on those little nuances. At least I think so. Um, And with that is the automation of IOC vetting. I know everybody wants to kind of create, I've I've even been trying, uh, some companies have tried to hire me to build these programs where you're building a piece of software and um, the algorithms are, you know, vetting the reportings that come in and you're wanting to vet it for IOCs. I think it still needs that human element there, right? Because you can have an IOC, but unless you know the background of it, like where, where it was seen, how often was it seen? Has anyone else seen it? You know, is there a frequency to it? Um, how was it used? All that kind of stuff. Uh, a machine is just going to be gleaning out like a domain or an IP, but it's not necessarily going to have that story behind it that context. And so I think, you know, maybe there is a million dollar out idea out there of them being able to do that. But I honestly think that, that that's where the human element comes in. I think some pieces of software are doing a fairly good job when it comes to like the fusion analysis and building out that historical data. But I do still think that there is a human aspect to it. That always makes my heart break a little bit, just because anyone that knows me, I do automation all day so i'm always <laughs> i'm always trying to automate something it's I'm all good Ryan. We, we still need automation and is super automation. important but you know sometimes you just need people it is that's so true right? because i mean like what if you have like a report that's speaking about a separate case right and it's trying to do that link analysis to it but it's bringing in different iocs but then it's just taking it as okay this report is saying these iocs and so all of this is bad right and you just kind of need to know again, what context is it being used in? Like, why was it mentioned? So I think that I, I just don't know how a machine will know that yet. And, and again, maybe somebody smarter than me will figure that out. But I haven't, I haven't completely seen it yet. You know, one of the themes for this season has been bias. And I think 
when you rely solely or really heavily on automation, then you're going to get the bias that you've tuned your your automation for or you've tuned this expert system for. What kind of bias are you dealing with or running into as a threat intel analyst? What's most prominent from your experience? Oh, so there's the anchor bias, right? So it's the one where you know something and you've seen it before and you're kind of just like focused on that, but then something else comes in. And so you kind of like can almost make it work for what you're working on, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm explaining yep. that correctly. That makes sense. No, that's, that's yeah. it. And so anchoring bias, I think, is one of the worst ones. I don't think it's called availability bias. Maybe it is. It's the one where like, you know, you you go into work thinking you're going to work on something for one day, but then leadership comes in and just kind of like, no, this is the priority for today. You need to work on this. And it's just because of something they heard on the radio that morning or whatever it is. And so like all of a sudden your, your time and your priority is shifted just because of something that they think is more important. So that's another one that I think is a huge one that as an analyst, I've definitely come across. I think I did a talk on this for the Recon Village. <laughs> at DEF CON, not this year, obviously, but last year I was doing it. It was a terrible talk. Um, there are things on it now that I kind of, <laughs> I, as time goes on and more information is found and the examples I used, I, I probably wouldn't have used them, but it's out there and I think it's on YouTube or something like that, but not my best. The uh, I think the slideshow wasn't working at the time. So I did a oh, lightning no. talk in 20 minutes. Yeah, As oh, I was going geez. up on stage, they're like, the projector just broke. Can you All still do your memory. talk? I'm like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're seeing me and I'm, I'm like glued to my script because I'm just in panic. <laughs> <laughs> but I got through it and it was 20 minutes and, and that was it. So yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Not my best talk, but it's out there. <laughs> I mean, you, you still did it, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's great. You know, yeah. we, we've been talking about bias all throughout the season. We talked with Jack Resider because there's a lot of bias that he's dealing with when it comes to his stories, because he's talking a lot of the times he's talking to the criminals that perpetrated the stuff and he's trying to balance the story and entertainment and truthfulness and all these different things. Where do you think threat intelligence analysts kind of go wrong when it comes to to bias? Is it just not being aware of, that bias exists? Or is it that, you know, kind of like the examples you gave before, those kind of go-to biases kind of creep into to the product? What, what do you think? Yeah, I honestly think that um, any program is out, that's out there, whether it be like um, just something that's already established or, or that's, that's being currently built, it's one of the things that they should be super, super cognizant of. Every intelligence analyst should be cognizant of what biases they have built in, whether it be like cultural or generational or, or whatever it is. I mean, I know that I was, I was raised in a you know, strict Indian um, Asian household and you know, there were certain things from that background that might cause a bias in me. Also, like, you know, coming from, I don't know, California or the fact that I'm, I think I'm Gen X. I have no idea what I am, <laughs> but whatever it is, you know I mean? Then like everybody was kind of like, ah, millennials, they don't know what they're doing or whatever it is, you know I mean? That in itself is a bias, right? So, I mean, just kind of I, the, the whole gist of my, my talk was basically saying like, know your biases, like explore them, question yourself, have that self-awareness, and then know what you can do to counteract them. So if it's something like, you know, you know that you are just like really tied to this because you're a subject matter expert in this and you're really tied to it. That's where that anchoring bias that I mentioned comes in and being aware of that and being like, being able to look at it from like a, a outside 
perspective or point of view. And this is where the diversity in teams, and I'm not talking about just like racial, but just by the way of people thinking and stuff like that. But diversity within teams is huge because if you all have the same like mindset, right, then you're not going to be able to kind of counteract or see anything. It's, it's kind of like when you, um, are so ingrained in a paper, right? Like when you're in college or something like that, and just getting that outside set of eyes is just so huge because maybe you're not seeing something that you missed because you've looked at it 50 times and somebody else can look at it and then like one second pick up on it, right? So it's always, always great to have that just uh, diversity within your team of um, different opinions, different backgrounds, uh, different generations, whatever it is. Um, And I think it's been said before, and I'll reiterate it, having people like librarians, reporters, reporters, especially they're used to working with tight deadlines and, and under, under, under specific um, timelines, they make great threat intelligence analysts. Um, They're already used to doing the research and stuff like that. I think it's becoming more prevalent now of knowing that there is like fake news out there or the, um, oh, I'm dropping the word for it right now. Basically the, uh, you know, when I totally lost it. Those videos were basically you like superimpose like your head on something else, you know? I, oh, oh, like uh, deep, deep fakes. fakes. Yeah. Deep fakes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> things like that. Right. Like, no, how do we know what we're looking for is uh, what we're looking at is real. Right. Um, and just being able to just question all that kind of stuff. It makes you slightly paranoid. Right. Like I think everything I do now, I'm, I'm slightly <laughs> like paranoid. I'm like, are you who you say you are? Yes. Okay. (laughs) With all of those, you know, data points out there that you've seen, you've seen fake information, you've seen information about attacks, you've you've also obviously seen some stuff with defects, which I'm sure is going to explode in the future. Yeah. But with all your experience, what would it take, you know, from a defense perspective to make something seemingly unhackable? What what are the things that attackers would just be thwarted by to where they couldn't make as much progress as they previously were? What are, what are your thoughts on that? That is a tough question. Wow. <laughs> and don't fall no, for it, Susan. Don't fall yeah. for it. <laughs> wow. Um, I honestly hate, it's kind of like saying somebody's an expert in something. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a term that I really don't like, but it's kind of the same thing as saying like you're unhackable because it's kind of like challenge accepted, you know, like exactly. let me see what I can do. <laughs> so I don't know if I want to fall for that question right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I uh, to say something's unhackable is just it's just putting a target on you, right? Um, it is. I, <laughs> I think you can do your best, but the, if if somebody wants to get at you, they're going to find some way. And also, there's always error in something, right? Um, whether it's you haven't patched something yet, or human error, or just there's too many factors going into if we're looking at an environment or a network. Um, that you just cannot possibly lock down and still be functional, right? A recruiter has to open, I mean, of course, you can put like screening software and stuff like that, security software in there. But like a a recruiter has to open attachments named resume, right? Like that's their job is to be looking at resumes and finding the perfect candidate and to be like, you can teach them, you know, uh, make sure if you're clicking a link, it doesn't look weird or, you know, scan all attachments or things like that. Like you can you can try to put all these safeguards into place, but there's always just going to be some, some way um, somebody finds around to that. So I don't, I don't really like the term unhackable. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned yeah. that about the, the resumes. Whenever I open them up, I try to do it in um, 
like another Sample. portal, like a yeah, yeah, like Google Docs. Like I'm not gonna download it. I'm just gonna like allow it to look at it, look at it in the browser, if anything. But so yeah. true. I think I um, I worked at a company and the um, receptionist there, they knew that she wasn't like super, super tech savvy. And so they like set up so many um, VMs for her because she just blew up her machine so many times. And so basically it would just be like, oh, I did it again. And they would just go like, you know, put a new VM in for her or like start a new VM for her and stuff. Because like being the receptionist, like she was like the point of entry, right? And just between like the phone calls that she received and social engineering and then like the attachment she was getting and whatnot, they just after a while knew that she was kind of, and it wasn't her fault. I mean, she was doing her job, but she was a point of, um, vulnerability for the company so they just put her in vms to work out of so <laughs> i remember that that's funny so i don't know if people know this and most people don't i think ron knows this but once upon a time you and i actually talked about doing a podcast together and yeah. one of the reasons i wouldn't say one of the reasons but one of the bonuses of having us on the podcast is one of your best characteristics that people remark on probably the most is your voice and not oh. just not just the the quality of your voice, but actually the clarity, the articulation, things like that. How important is that for threat intelligence analysts to be able to stand and speak articulately about, you know, the thing that they're bringing up when they're trying to push or persuade someone to take action on a particular threat? How important is being able to communicate that through their voice? Well, first, thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> It's a great compliment to get, especially if you want to speak about imposter syndrome real quick. Uh, I know that's not the question you asked me, but recently I feel like sometimes I speak up in meetings and I'm not getting my point across. And then somebody else will say the exact same thing that I said, just maybe uh, wordsmithing it or using different words. And uh, then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, great, amazing, wonderful. And I'm like, wait a minute, I literally just said that. <laughs> and so I've, I've come across that too much recently that I'm like, am I not communicating effectively anymore? Like what happened? Because I do think it's such a huge part about being a threat intel analyst. And I mean, I think you constantly see it and see it in job descriptions is needs to be able to effectively communicate, right? Um, whether it be to leadership or stakeholders or clients or, you know, the SOC or whatever it is. And we need to be able to do it as timely and quickly as possible, just because of the fact that that's what threat intelligence is. It's actionable and, and timely intelligence. And so being able to tell your point and, and sell it so that you get the buyers, the stakeholders buy-in is just incredible. And I think it's benefited me in nearly every single job that I've had. Um, and just until re recently, like as, as I've been like job hunting or, you know, looking at different jobs, one of the things they said was having not only just a public persona, but knowing that I don't have a fear of getting on stage and speaking is one of the things that like proves to them that like, oh, okay, she can talk to a C-level or she can talk to a client and we can trust her to communicate our message effectively. So um, I'm super thankful for the fact that it's a, a skill that I have and I will continue to hone it just because I know that, again, nobody's ever an expert, right? So <laughs> right. always be learning. But yeah, I think as a threat intel analyst, it's a, it's a great, great skill to have. And, and I've had so many, and Chris, you, you know this too, so many people come to us and say like, hey, will you be my mentor? Or, you know, how do you get into threat intelligence? Or what would you recommend and stuff like that? And not only is it just, you know, getting used to reading and being able to vet reports and stuff like that, or whether it's, you know, networking and, and being involved in the community and just kind of meeting as many people as you can and, and using that network. It's also being able to just kind of 
get over that fear of being able to present, whether it be to a small crowd or a conference room full of people or whatever it is, it's a huge skill to have. So well, again, thank you. <laughs> so not only cultivating yourself as a great speaker and someone comfortable with getting on stage, which I think a lot of people struggle with, including myself at some points, depending on how big the audience is, but you've also founded an organization that really all about presenting cybersecurity information and things that might be relevant to those in the community. How do you cultivate the next wave of speakers through B-Sides and what are some of your tactics there? I was really fortunate that when we we did B-Sides Sacramento, we've only had one year of it, but the first year was so successful and we were able to gather these amazing speakers and I had help finding them. It It wasn't on me, but we were very cognizant of the fact that we wanted local speakers, people who um, hadn't had a chance to speak at conferences before. And the fact that we're such a small conference, I think it kind of helped people negate that fear because we knew we were only going to have maybe 100 people in the room. I think it ended up being 147, but maybe not all at the same time. So around 100, 125 people. It was a little bit less intimidating. And we had like these just incredible technical talks. We gave them freedom to speak on whatever topic it was. We ended up getting and we were also very cognizant of the fact that we wanted to have a nice um, diversity in, in the speaker pool, so underrepresented groups. And, and it just turned out that I think we had like 40% from underrepresented groups that submitted to the CFP. But then with the people who we did a blind, it was a double blind, actually, when it came to the reviews. And it just so happened that 40% ended up being uh, what was picked. So it, it reflected really well. And then with our um, keynote being Snow, who is incredible, if any of you ever have a chance to follow her on Twitter or hear her speak, she's just amazing. Her being um, a female as well, um, made our numbers really well for 50%. But I was very aware that people were traveling from the Sacramento region the Northern California region, Sierra Nevada, I think. Basically, they were all coming to the San Francisco area when it was B-Sides or RSA and stuff like that. So being from Sacramento, and it's near and dear to my heart, it's where I grew up, and I wanted to bring that opportunity there too. Um, we were happy. We were. <laughs> we said, if we can get 50 people, we'll be super excited. And the fact that tickets <laughs> sold out so fast, we were like, okay, this is actually a thing. Um, and unfortunately, with COVID this year, I, we're, we're debating on like what we should do, and we're we're probably going to end up postponing it to 2021 because it, it's supposed to happen in, in October, November of this year. But it just seems like um, it's it's not a great thing with what's happening right now in the world. But also to that point, when you said that, it made me think of another company, Scythe. They are doing a great job of having these virtual conferences. And for the people who aren't seasoned speakers, they actually pair them up with a mentor. I know Women's Cyber Jitsu has kind of done the same thing too, and and I'm sorry if I'm forgetting other organizations, but I've seen it out there where if you have little to no speaking experience or you just want the help or the feedback, uh, you can get paired up with a mentor, somebody who is a little bit maybe more seasoned or comfortable with public speaking, and they can help you review your slides and go over your your talking points and script with you and just give you pointers and stuff. And I think it's it's a great thing within the community that's happening right now that I've seen quite a bit. So if anybody's ever apprehensive about it, maybe look for those opportunities or I, I like I, I, I mentioned before, and I think Chris, same things happened to you. And, um, you know, just people come up to us and ask us, you know, will you be my mentor and stuff? And I always try to take that opportunity because if I could ever pass along any kind of knowledge from what I've experienced, then why not? Like I said, you're a force within the community, 
But let's take a few spooky steps outside of the community <laughs> to the stakeholders that might be outside of threat intelligence, maybe even outside of security that rely on threat intelligence. What, from your perspective, what do you think those stakeholders outside of those realms get wrong most about threat intel? I think, honestly, it's just been such a new, I don't want to say a new term because threat intelligence has been around for a while, right? But it's kind of like, it has to be this like afterthought, like let's get this stuff done first before we actually get to the threat intelligence portion. Mm -hmm. So if it was always be like, if you're splitting it up into phases and I'm going to kind of talk like a consultant now. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it on. (laughs) So if you have that like phase one, two, three approach, what is the uh, plan, run, walk or plan, walk, run um, kind of thing. You always do the planning. And I think it always is kind of like an afterthought of uh, let's do threat intelligence after we get this done. Let's do threat intelligence after we have this in place and stuff like that, instead of it being like a central part of the operations. So it's intelligence driven. Uh, It's more of like a, how can we fit it in later? And I think if people would really see the value that threat intelligence can bring in and start looking at things, because everything, when you're looking at it from like, you know, what's the soft monitoring or what's what's the organization seeing and, and looking at the actual internal intelligence that's there, uh, the internal information that's there, it's from a reactive standpoint. So it's hard to move to that proactive place when you're always looking backwards. And so I think if people actually thought about implementing it earlier and building the programs along with it, it would be a smarter approach. I understand from a budget perspective why people always kind of put threat intelligence because they're always like, most of the time, it's because they've already been owned in some way, right? Like they've already had some sort of a breach and they're just reacting and like, how can we safeguard everything as quickly as possible? And then we'll worry about threat intelligence. So I understand it, but I wish it was different. The planning stage is so difficult and tedious, but you're so right. You ha- you always have to follow that approach in some regard before standing up a program. And I'm sure th- I'm sure that's one of the misconceptions for a lot of those out there that aren't actively practicing threat intelligence. From your experience and kind of what you're seeing, what's the future of Susan and also the future of threat intelligence? Yeah. So the future of Susan is uh, a little bit ambiguous right now. Uh, I, like I said, I, I took that Carnegie Mellon course and I didn't do it because I thought, oh, I want to become a CISO one day and like this is my trajectory now. It was more just to become more empathetic towards their plight and like what they're going through. And that definitely happened, right? Like CISOs aren't just there to run a sock and, and make sure that, you know, it's going. They have to think about like estimative cost budget analysis, risk analysis, um, you know, um, maintaining the relationship with the C-levels and like making sure that they're happy and stakeholders, actual stakeholders, like people who invested in the company are happy. They have a lot of balls in the air and, and that they need to juggle and stuff. And so I definitely know stepping into more of a director, manager, whatever leadership role, I can go with a little bit more eyes open. I've been approached a lot more about, like I said, I was director of advisory services, and that was essentially to be the liaison between client and company. But then, you know, in operations and stuff, which is essentially what I was doing at Mandiant back in 2012 to 14, 15, that was operations. It was all about, you know, the the relationship with the clients and again, budgets, and then also maintaining team and, and making sure that they're happy and taken care of. And so... Susan's based in in the threat intel side, but let's see what happens. You know, uh, I think that there's a lot of growth that can happen when it comes to threat intelligence. Just to that point and the future of it, 
I took that course this past week because, again, I don't think anybody's ever completely an expert. I always want to hear from other industry experts who, one of was who gave this course. It was through Paralysis, Joe Slowick. Um, he works for Dragos, uh, amazing guy. And I've always respected his work. So when he offered this course, I was like, why not? Let's see what's going on. Because maybe I will take, a, and I don't want to say a step back, but maybe I will just, you know, go back to my roots and just be an, a senior analyst at a, a company of, of whatever it is. And I wanted to know if I'd missed anything because it's been really since 2018, since I've actually sat and been an analyst, it's always been creating programs since then. I've actually haven't had my hands in any threat actor work or writing reports or anything like that. So it's like, like, what what have I missed in the meantime? And not that there was anything earth shattering. Um, threat Intel is moving at like a, a lightning pace as far as like the actual like foundations and and uh, techniques that we use and stuff. What I have seen is a lot of different tools coming out onto the market because I think people are seeing like gaps and um, spaces that need to be filled. And so they're coming up with the technology to do that. Ron, I think that's kind of your forte, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where are things missing and how can we automate it or how can we move it more um, into the future? And I honestly think that that's where I learned a lot was, okay, what's new in the world? It's not just like the traditional like network standard of a SIM or TIP or beads or anything like that. It's like there's more out there now. So I think staying on top of that stuff is really huge and beneficial to be effective in threat intelligence. So speaking of the future, we can't talk about the future without thinking about the future of the workforce. For the people that are looking to get into this field, get into threat intelligence, what piece of advice would you give to them on their way into the the community? Right. So the networking is always a huge part. I think that there is just so much to be said about, I mean, that's how I found my first job at NCIJTF. It was just totally random. And just putting yourself out there, letting yourself almost be vulnerable in that space and say, hey, I really want to move into threat intelligence. Finding that mentor, somebody who can kind of walk you through it or give you resources. There are just so many things out there. Like recently, I was reading, um, and it, it was probably published last month, I think she did, but Katie Nichols um, put out a top 10 reading list if you're getting started in cyber threat intelligence. I believe it was a Medium article. I don't know if you all have seen that, but it was yeah, uh, a fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was a fantastic culmination of just like, or compendium of like um, just resources. And it's it was good to see um, somebody actually finally put this into a list. But it was a lot of the stuff that I always kind of just share with people like, oh, make sure you read this or, you know, look at this article or this PDF and stuff like that. And so I would say that's a great place to start and just become super familiar with those things. But yeah, networking, finding a mentor, reading, getting your hands on as many resources as possible. Like I said, like I, I just took this course and it was it's great to be in classes like that. And I know Sans has the is it GCTI? What is it called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it. Yeah, that course. Um, and it's just you meet so many people in these environments that you're in, and they're usually from all over the world, especially the Sans one. I think we had people from like I don't know, Colombia and the UK and UAE and, and stuff like that in my course. It was amazing. And then even in this course now, especially because it's online, we were talking to people from all over the world. I think they were taking the class at like 2 a.m. their time. But there are people who are really passionate about it. So just getting like involved and learning in those kind of environments is huge. So, yeah. Susan, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. It's always a pleasure to have you in the studio. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the things that you have going on, what are the ways that people can do that? Right. Yeah. So I've been fairly silent on Twitter recently, um, just because I was I was so entrenched in work and everything like that. But 
Oh, and that was the other thing. I'll revert back to the last question, um, being active on Twitter, because I do feel like a lot of the cyber community lives there. And it's one of the best places to stay up to date on like what's happening in the community and just events that are happening or opportunities speaking or, you know, just uh, virtual conferences you can listen in on. It's, Twitter is a great place. So it's a plethora of information for us. But so I'm on Twitter. It's V33NA. That's my handle. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very available if anybody ever wants to just kind of reach out and ping me. Um, those are the two best ways of reaching me, but it's very easy to find me. My last name isn't common. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll be able to find me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Awesome. Thanks. And we'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes just so everyone can stay in contact with you. I know that you and Chris specifically are always seeking out opportunities to be mentors to those in the community. So thank you guys both for that. And with that being said, Susan, thank you so much. And we'll see everybody next time.